be studying Colossians separately with your teachers. So they'll be meeting out in the hallway then. Let's pray together and prepare our hearts for his word. Lord Jesus, we trust that as we have uh, affirmed you in the songs that we have sung, in the prayers that we have prayed, as we have recited what your word tells us about your greatness your, and your beauty, that you have been pleased to receive our praises. And therefore we ask, O oh God, in, in, in Jesus' name, that this place has become uh, an environment in which none of the forces of darkness can remain. And so we would very specifically, having drawn near to you, resist the enemy, we would ask, O oh God, that every argument, every rationalization, every thought process that sets itself up against the knowledge of God will be taken captive and every thought will be made obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come now to listen to you, Jesus, the one who speaks living words to us from your word, we pray that you may continue the work that you have already begun. We pray that you will speak into our lives. You have prepared us during the events of this week and brought us to this point. You have prepared us in the last half an hour or so as we have worshipped and you will prepare us for what lies ahead for us. So, again, I pray that with anticipation, because Jesus, the one who speaks, is alive, that we will hear carefully. We yield our minds and our hearts to you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. The three most popular news magazines in the States are Time Magazine, Newsweek, and U.S. Today and World Report. Two of the three we get today, you don't get the other one here. In the last ten years, we've seen a real proliferation of covers uh, that have basically been devoted in one way or another to Jesus Christ. And of course they do them because they are bestsellers. Here are some observations from some uh, news writers on why they do that. Publishers of the nation's three major news weeklies have long known that covers featuring Jesus create a buzz that help them outsell most other covers. According to Folio magazine, Jesus rocks on the newsstand. Evoking the Almighty's name or even just his name on a cover moves copies. According to Cover Analyzer, an information network that measures single copy sales on 300 of the top selling consumer magazines. On average, sales for magazines featuring Jesus as the primary cover subject increased by as much as 45%. The newsstand sales figures from the April 1990 U.S. News and World Report issue featuring a cover story on the last days of Jesus was the second all-time highest selling issue. So you know why they do it. They do it to make money. And they do it to get us interested. And of course, whenever I see a cover like that, I always pick up the magazine to read it. Probably do many of you. But when we do, when we do, you will find in most of these magazines, though the details will vary, a few common elements. There will usually be some uh, interviews with some scholars uh, who cast some doubt and aspersions on the historical reliability of the scriptures that give us the picture of Jesus that we know. There will be, if appropriate, quotations and references to the alleged latest findings of archaeologists and whatnot that further undermine some of the Bible's uh, source material for us. And there will always be interviews and comments by, by theologians, usually on the liberal end of the spectrum, who have some new and unusual theory on the relevance of Jesus to our life today. And the one common thing that ties them all together is they will question the divinity of Christ. Now, inevitably, when we read these kinds of things, our reactions will vary. But in many cases, in many cases, they bring to the surface some doubts that we ourselves may have. Even some doubts that we've kept uh, carefully suppressed. And if we're not aware of how to handle and respond to these things, 
over a period of time unconsciously, these things just slowly eat away at our commitment to persevere in a life of trust and obedience to Christ. What we need is an effective counter to inroads like this. There are many dimensions to such an counter. Yes, we need good scholarship that will deal with some legitimate questions that are raised. And yes, we will need carefully reasoned and well thought through apologetics. And one, somebody asked me last night what that was, so I better define it. It's basically that whole area that deals with the intellectual side of the Christian faith. We need all of that. But there's another dimension that I want to focus on today, and it has something to do with our worship, especially our corporate worship. And we find that in the next passage that is before us in our study of Colossians, which we began last week. You might recall, those of you who were here, that the Colossians were facing a, a particular a brand of heresy that had three strands to it. And one of those was uh, Greek philosophical speculation. And while we do not know exactly what the details of it was, it was probably an early form of Gnosticism that didn't fully develop till the second century. Uh, one thing we are reasonably certain that Jesus in this scheme of things was relegated to some shadowy area that bridged the gap between an absolute God who was pure and immaterial and a world that was material and therefore evil. And he occupied some kind of lofty position, admittedly, in, in this heavenly pantheon of angels that bridged the gap between God and man. In order to prevent the encroachment or the further encroachment of this heresy and restore Jesus to his proper position, the Apostle Paul, after having given his greeting and his prayer that we looked at last week, presents a, a magnificent portrait of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Verse 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. As I mentioned to you last week, every single phrase, especially in a statement like this, is absolutely critical. And so, I want to invite you to, to, to pay attention and, and follow me as I take you through verse, phrase by phrase this section. Not because I am speaking. Or not because the sermon is brilliant, but because the theme, it, which is Jesus Christ, warrants that kind of attention. And more than that, because the stakes are incredibly high, because he finishes by saying, if these things are true, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope that is held out. So in some way, our perseverance in the faith is very closely linked to our being grasped by these magnificent assertions that Paul makes about Jesus. <coughs> Now, let me just take you them through one phrase at a time. First of all, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In history, both ancient and modern, this verse has actually been used as fuel for a significant heresy. One of the 
heresies, damaging heresies in the early church was known as Arianism, which claimed and taught that Jesus was not God. Jesus was man, but he, was, he occupied a lofty position, even the loftiest position in creation, but he was a created being. And of course, we have the modern day equivalent of that in the Jehovah's Witnesses cult, which also denies the deity of Jesus and claims, and they draw their teaching from this statement, firstborn over all creation. Well, it says in the Bible that Jesus was the firstborn. So he was first, but he was born, therefore he was created like everybody else. So we need, we need to understand what Paul was really saying in this verse and why those kinds of uh, deductions, both Arianism in the 4th century and modern day cults are completely wrong in understanding this verse this way. First of all, uh, let's take the phrase image of God. Well, one obvious background to that is Genesis chapter 1 when God made human beings in his own image. And so that was part of the argument of the assumption that that must also imply that Jesus was created. But that's not the only background to the phrase image of God. Probably more likely to the Colossians, especially with the Greek background that they had, uh, the writings of uh, Philo, a, G- a, Greek, a Jewish philosopher, in, in his speculative writings, he wrestled with this idea of how the absolute God, who was unknowable and invisible, how would this God manifest himself? How would he show or reveal himself? And, and as he continued his speculations, he, he, he introduced a play around, play around an idea called logos, which in the Greek is simply the word for word. And in Philo's concept, this supreme God manifested himself as the Logos. Only in Philo's thinking, the Logos was itself still invisible. It was more an idea. And by grasping this idea of the Logos, we could somehow get a little bit closer to understanding this supreme God. Now you say, what does that have to do with this text? Simply this, that Philo also referred to this Logos as the image of God. In other words, Uh, when Paul was writing to a people who had this kind of a background, and he said Jesus was the image of the invisible God, it was not a reference back to Genesis 1, but more likely a reference to this idea. And what Paul is saying was, hey listen, you got it wrong. When this unknowable or this infinite supreme God manifested himself, it wasn't in some idea called Logos, it was in the person of Jesus Christ himself. He is the exact image of the invisible God. Now, what about the word firstborn? Same thing. Firstborn does not mean, in this case, first in temporal sequence, like we might say, or like I might say, Rebecca is the firstborn of our four grandchildren. Philo also referred in his writings to this concept of Logos, not only as the image of God, but also as the firstborn. And so there was that antecedent for the use of the word firstborn. That firstborn in this kind of Greek philosophy referred not to priority in time, but priority in rank and in essence. Added to that is how the Old Testament refers to, uses the word to refer to Messiah. Psalm 89, 27 says, I will also appoint him my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Not meaning that this king was the first in time, but rather supreme in rank. And so when you put all of these things together, the, the, the Philo's use of the word image of God to refer to this Logos, his reference to that Logos as firstborn, and, and Hebrew scriptures specifically referring to the coming Messiah as the firstborn, it is not talking at all about Jesus as being created and first in sequence. It is affirming the supremacy and rank of Jesus Christ over everything. He is therefore prior over creation 
and he is over all of creation. Now, if there's any doubt at all, verse 16 completely removes that. For he goes on in verse 16 in the next statement and he says, For by him, by this Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers and rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Now, right away, this makes a huge distinction between the creature and the creation. Created beings cannot create. Only the uncreated can create. So, he says, far from Jesus being a part of creation, he is the one through whom all creation came into being. And when he specifically says, visible and invisible in heaven and on earth, thrones, powers, rulers and authorities, you can see the the relevance to the Colossian heresy. Where they were being taught speculatively that Jesus belonged in some some, uh, series of emanations of uh, created beings. Somewhere in the angelic realm. He says, no, Jesus created them all. Whoever they are, wherever they are, visible, invisible, Jesus created all of them. He's not part of them. He's supreme Lord over all of them. And then it goes on to say something else. He says, all things were not only created by him, but all things were created for him as well. In other words, Jesus was not only at the beginning, all of creation and history is moving towards an end goal, which is the glorification of this Jesus. And one man put it very well in these simple words. He says, this created universe is moving towards an ultimate goal. It is not a meaningless mass of happenstance, but the moving of a sovereign God in the affairs of man, pointing us towards an inevitable conclusion that all mankind shall bow before him and declare Jesus as Lord. All that exists is created by him and exists for the purpose of giving honor and glory to him and will do so one day. So that's verse 16. Now he comes to verse 17. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. <laughs> he is not only at the beginning, he is not at the end, he is over it throughout the middle, throughout the entire process. Now let me give you a couple of illustrations both at the macro end and the micro end of the spectrum. Several years ago, uh, NASA sent out an unmanned uh, spaceship known as uh, Voyager, I think it was. I forget which planet was one of those distant ones that uh, it, it hurtling through space for 12 years, covering over 2 billion miles, I think. It was only 4 minutes late. I can't make it in that time sometimes from the parsonage over here. <laughs> but here's the thing. That's not just an amazing testimony to man's ingenuity. The only reason, the only reason they can even achieve something like that it's because a whole planetary system moves in an absolutely predictable order and doesn't vary an iota over such long periods of time. Who keeps all of these things moving? Who keeps them all together? He says, Jesus does. Oh, there are astronomical explanations for it, he said. But if you want to go beyond that side, he says, there, there are these explanations. Hebrew says this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now come to the micro level, not just the macro, come to the micro level. One of the earliest lessons we learned in physics, and those of you who are physicists by profession, please pardon my inexactitude. I've forgotten all of that in the last 25 years. But I remember this enough, my first lesson in physics, that charged particles, similar particles repel and oppositely charged particles attract. So a positive and a negatively charged particle attract each other. But two positively charged particles or through negatively charged particles repel. Yet when it comes to the nucleus of the atom, we have an amazing thing where a whole bunch of positive things called protons are all clumped together so close. The question, how come they're not flying apart? Well, the physicists call it binding energy. And at least when I studied physics 35 years ago, they said, we don't know what keeps it all together. Colossians tells us, let me tell you. 
It is in Him that all things hold together. So whether it's a huge intergalactic space and all these massive bodies that are hurtling through space, whether it's keeping them all moving in perfect predictable precision, that a voyage of billion miles can be completed with an accuracy of four minutes, or whether it is holding things together at the subatomic level. He says it is in Jesus all things hold together. But you know, as I thought about it, there's something even more remarkable. Think with me for a moment about Jesus on the cross. What held Jesus to the cross? It was nails that were driven through his body under the piece of wood. But please don't stop there. Please ask yourself what held the nails together. Please ask yourself what held the wood together. Please ask yourself what held the muscles and the hands of the soldiers who were driving those nails into his body together. Amazingly, the answer of Colossians is Jesus did. He held together the nails and the wood that held him to the cross. That's when our intellect completely has to take departure and we bow in silence before God and worship Him. In Him, all things hold together. More of the cross in a few minutes. And then in verse 18, he says, not only is He head of creation, He's head of new creation. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Now this time He reintroduces the word firstborn and this time it does have time connotations. No, Jesus was not the firstborn in the sense that he was the firstborn of created beings. We've already seen that that was a title of supremacy and lordship over creation. But in his resurrection from the dead, he was firstborn from the dead. Before that, other people had been raised. Lazarus had been raised from the dead. But that was not a resurrection. That was a resuscitation. They simply went back to the same old decaying life that they had before and they would die again. Lazarus would die. When Elisha raised up the little, uh, the widow's little son, he would die again. But when Jesus rose from the dead, that was not resuscitation, that was resurrection. That was a raising up to a whole new kind of life that did not know any decay. And guess what? He's not alone in it anymore. Because all of us who have committed our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and have been joined together with him in his death and in his resurrection are going to be raised that way to newness of life. And therefore in that sense he has become the firstborn in time as well. But he also remains firstborn in priority and rank because he is head over the whole church. And now Paul reaches this climax of this in all of these, he says, the grand climax of all of this is what? So that, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. In case, in case we haven't got the message so far, he wraps it all up together. He said, everything, supreme Lord over creation, at the beginning of it, in the middle of it, at the end of it, supreme Lord over new creation, and everything that God is, Jesus is. So that in everything he might have the supremacy, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwelt within him. And then Paul goes on in verse 20 now to introduce a slightly different theme while still exalting Christ. And through him, see notice the end, it's just one continuous statement. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This, this presupposes that something went wrong with his creation. This creation that came into being through the agency of Christ, this creation over which he was Lord from beginning till middle till end, something happened to this creation that threw it out of kilter with Jesus, its Lord, requiring a reconciliation. That is presupposed in this jump. 
And so he says, through Jesus, through Jesus on the cross, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. Now, this, this verse has given rise to another heretical theology. And that is called universalism. That everybody will be saved one day. I mean, doesn't it say that through Jesus on the cross, God reconciled all things? And earlier on, up till now, all things have meant what? All things. So, surely this must mean that all human beings are one day going to be reconciled. And because it says whether in heaven or in earth, that might mean even the fallen angels will be reconciled. And some would say maybe even the devil will be reconciled. And just like the phrase firstborn at face value, it seems that that's at least a legitimate explanation. So, again, but knowing that the Bible clearly does not teach that. In fact, in a few verses from now, he'll show us that human beings are not in their natural condition reconcilable to God. There's another way to understand this. What then does he mean by all things? I want to belabor these points, but these are things that we need to understand accurately when the scriptures speak to us. Just like you understand now what firstborn means. There's a couple of ways in which we can understand the comprehensiveness of all things. One of them, which is a fairly simple one, may, may be all that there is in the text, but I think there's more than that. It's simply this. Jesus was up till now talking about all things and all of creation. But then in the preceding verses, he said, and now he's head over the church. So, maybe in his discussions, Paul has moved from all things universal to all things related to the church. And therefore, all this verse is saying is that everyone who forms part of the church has been there and is there only because they've been totally reconciled to God. So, maybe the all things are prescribed within the domain of the church. But I actually think there's a little bit more to it than that. So he goes on to say also by making peace. So it's not only reconciliation, but what we call pacification. And in the context of the first century Roman world, peace carried a double-edged sword to it. The Roman peace, which made for an ordered society, was achieved through the sword. Some people voluntarily subjected Rome, but if there was rebellion, it was crushed. By military action. And the conquered subjects were now part of the Roman peace. So the enemies were also pacified by Rome and involuntarily accepted the peace. Now Paul is going to tell us in Colossians chapter 2 that through the cross, through the cross, there was that kind of activity that was accomplished as well. For he says in the cross the principalities and the powers were all disarmed. And therefore by saying all things were reconciled, Maybe what he's saying is, and I think this is closer to what he's saying, that all things were either reconciled to God or pacified by conquest. So either voluntarily those who respond to Jesus or involuntarily those who will not are all still pacified and and in one way or another through the cross. Either reconciled to God in fellowship or judged and disarmed by the cross. Either way, whichever way makes more sense to you. This also, again, demonstrates to us. Paul's point is not universalism. Paul's point is that the effectiveness of Christ's work on the cross is comprehensive. It covers all things, those that respond and those that do not. Some are reconciled and some are pacified. And now Paul takes this amazing statement about Jesus from verses 15 to 20. And he applies it to the Colossians. He said, okay Colossians, this is the Christ that I present to you. In contrast to all this speculation about Jesus and who he is and where he is in this angelic order of things that passes off as wisdom. 
He said, this is true spiritual wisdom and understanding. And you, what does that mean for you? He says, and you Colossians. In the text it says, once you were, but in the Greek it is emphatically, and you. Let me come to you Colossians. Let me come to you Rexdale Alliance Church. And he says three things about them. He says, once you were alienated from God, you were aliens. In other words, you were strangers. You were not part of this community. In our natural condition, we are not part of the church of Jesus Christ. We are aliens, we are strangers, we are separated from this community of beings who are going to share in the resurrection life. We are not part of that group over which Jesus is head. We are not part of his, of the brotherhood of the firstborn. Not only that, he says, you were alienated from God because you were enemies in your mind. The enmity against God, that is a natural condition of human beings, is, is a settled attitude of the mind that is hostile to God. It is a mind that says, I can't, I will not. I will never. Over my dead body. I had a colleague at Atomic Energy of Canada, one time the subject came up, he said, ah, Christianity is the worst poison that has ever been afflicted upon this world. That, that's the enmity in your mind. But it goes more than mind, because the Greek word that is used for mind here was used in the translation of the uh, Hebrew Bible into Greek. It was used to translate a Hebrew word, leb, which means heart. And therefore, it is not only the mind, but it is also the totality of the person. It was also used to translate emotions. So at the level of emotion, at the level of mind, in fact, the whole person is involved in this attitude of enmity against God. Paul in Romans says, the carnal mind or the natural mind is enmity against God. It does not want to please God and it cannot please God. So he said, you were alienated from God. This is a description of every human being in their natural condition. And if anybody is here this morning who has not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, this is your real condition. Because Christ is this amazing, awesome God, this is your normal condition. Alienated from God, enemies in your mind. And he says one more thing, enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. Now we're more used, we're more used to thinking that it is because of how we think that we act in a certain way. That's true. But Paul's taking it one step further. He said, if you continue acting that way, you become more enemies too. This is a cycle. The attitude of hostility towards God results in actions that are contrary to God and a perseverance in the actions that are contrary to God solidifies your enmity against God and deepens your alienation from God. This is a miserable condition of humanity. doesn't matter how good and how nice and how religious you look on the outside. This is our condition. Paul says, you Colossians were like this and he says, but, but, you see it's still about Jesus, it's still not about the Colossians. He says, but now he, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. This is not a testimony to the wonderful sensitivity of the Colossians. This is not saying, guys, one morning you turned over a new leaf. Look what nice people you've become. Please tell us the secret of your transformation. Now, this is still a glorification of Jesus. This is what you guys were and if God didn't do anything, that's where you would be. By your own religious efforts, whether that religion is called Christianity or something else, that's where you would remain. But let me tell you about Jesus. What has he done? Through, through Jesus, he says, God, you have been presented. Christ is able to present you holy in his sight. That word in his sight, in, in the original, is made up of three words. It's called look, in, and over. Sorry, look down and in. It's sort of me just kind of going over Sharon and Suresh like this. Looking down upon them. You know, and looking deep into them. <laughs> and what do I find there? Holy blameless, free from all accusation. I mean, can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine an infinitely holy God looking deep into a human soul with a view to examining them and pronouncing them faultless and blameless? Because of Jesus. It's the colossal nature of Jesus and therefore the magnificence of that work on the cross that allows a holy God to pronounce unholy people just by faith. (coughs) Completely free from accusation. And then Paul concludes in verse 23 with these words. All this is true. He says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, what is that if doing there? For some people, we think that if, oh, oh, that's just like any other religion. We've got to earn this before God. All this is true if we do this. No, 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 no. In the New Testament, every time this if comes, and I won't bore you with all the grammatical distinctions in it, but the essence of it is not condition but demonstration of reality. What Paul is saying is, people who were once alienated and have now been reconciled to God, they live this way. Your perseverance is a demonstration of your reconciliation. And he amplifies it. What does continuance in the faith look like? Established and firm. Think of a house. When a house is built, first of all, it has to have good foundations and then have a good superstructure. If it doesn't have any foundations, it's going to crumble. If it doesn't have any good superstructure... uh, The wolf will blow it away. It needs to be firm at both levels. Deep down and on the surface. And he says that's what a faith, an established faith is like. There are strong foundations that go deep. And in the next chapter he'll be amplifying that. And then the superstructure also is firm and not shaky. And he says you will not be moved from the hope. And Paul has already talked about the hope three times in chapter 1. Remember last week we learned the love for the saints comes from the hope that is stored up for them in heaven. We learned last week that we have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. And today he's telling us that all of creation is moving towards that grand and glorious hope when Jesus will be receiving the glory that he deserves and you and I will be part of that. He says, those who are persevering will not be moved from that hope no matter how many magazines try to tell them something different. It is this continuance in the faith established at the level of foundations and at the level of the superstructure and not easily moved. That doesn't mean there won't be buffetings. <laughs> there will be storms, intellectual storms, emotional storms, psychological storms. But there will not be ultimate moving from the faith. That's the demonstration of the fact that we are a reconciled people and no longer alienated from God. This is the portrait of Jesus that Paul has painted so that the Colossian heresy would not penetrate. Now, I began by telling you that Paul's answer to this, to this counter-perspective that we need is not so much a matter of careful scholarship or a matter of apologetics, although they have their place, but it's a matter of worship. Why did I say that? Because if you go back and look at the structure of Colossians 1.15-20, to 20, it's apparent even in the English and it's very clear in the original. It was laid out in the form of carefully designed a creedal statement what they would call an early hymn. And you know what creeds are. They're like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which you're more familiar with. Creeds are condensed statements in very carefully crafted, theology-laden words that encapsulate biblical truth about God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and put them in a form that is capable of being memorized and recalled and recited individually and corporately. In order to prevent the encroachment of heresy, all the early church creeds were hammered out in the face of heresy. To solidify the doctrine of God. To solidify the doctrine of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. 
And so it's not surprising, faced with an heresy in the Colossian church, Paul draws upon an early creedal statement. And as I understood that, it helped me to see what the primary application of this text should be. The primary application of the text is to use it as a creedal statement. It's got nine verses in it. My, my uh, practical suggestion to you is to memorize those nine verses. Throughout the study of Colossians, why not just memorize that central creed about Christ? Let it become accessible to you. And then, then when you pick up a Newsweek magazine and read the writings of the scholars, then when David Suzuki writes a column, or when Tom Harper begins his speculations, or someone thrusts the Da Vinci Code into your hand, you might be able to say to them, I'm not a scholar. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm not an apologist. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you something about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. All things were created by Him and in Him. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from the dead. So that in all things He might have the preeminence because the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell in Him. And through Him He has reconciled unto God all things, whether things in heaven or in earth, by making peace through the blood on the cross. And I, who was once alienated from God, enmity with God in my mind, and evil in my actions, have now been pronounced holy and blameless and free from accusation in His sight. So there, in your face. (laughs) Creeds are in your face resistances to the attacks of the enemy upon our lives. They work together with careful scholarship and good apologetics. And then, and then, rise, rise from those kind of encounters to say, I'm going to do what Paul did. I'm going to continue to live out my faith. For Paul says, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Why will I preach the gospel to every part of the world? Because all things have been reconciled and pacified by Jesus. Because the scope of his work is universal, the scope of my obedience is universal. Which is why uh, Suresh and Sharal are headed off. Which is why right now at 10 o'clock the Vaughan Church is meeting. Which is why we'll have another few more people before the summer is over who are going out to various parts of the world. Which is why we as a church will not be satisfied with just Jerusalem or with Judea or with Samaria but as we've been reminded to the uttermost corners of the earth. Because all of us have become servants of this gospel. Now, because this is a creed, we want to continue. As the worship team comes now and leads us, we're going to take the last part of the service to continue to affirm some magnificent truths about Jesus in modern day hymns, old and new. But we will not be praying in these words. We will be affirming. We will be making creedal statements about who Jesus is. Let it sink in deep within you. May you become an established and affirm people.
And if you want to add to the memorizing of those verses in Colossians, the four verses of this song, the two of them together will put a powerful creedal confession in your hand to use morning, noon and night whenever you need it. As I was uh, thinking about the benediction, uh, I thought, it went back to this creed and saw how every single statement there about Christ spoke to some part of the human condition. And so I just simply want to use those observations to bless you today. <clears throat> you want to just put that one back on a sec. For those of you who may have lost sight of God today, may you know Jesus Christ, the manifestation of God. May he reveal God afresh to you. For those who feel overwhelmed by the natural disasters that uh, plague this world of ours, may you remember that all of creation is moving towards an end. May, harness, may Christ harness the chaos of creation in your life. When external stresses or internal chaos threatens to pull you apart, may you know Jesus Christ as the one who holds everything together. When you feel damaged by your own sin, may he know you as the one who resurrects you and is the author of new creation as well. When you feel empty, may you know him who is the fullness of God and in whom all the fullness of God dwells and may that dwell in you. When you feel alienated from God because of your sin, may you know Christ, the one who has reconciled you to the Father. When you feel powerless in the face of external power structures, both human and demonic, may you know him who on the cross has pacified even them as well. And when the enemy of your soul accuses you, may you know Christ presenting you blameless and without spot to the Father. And when you feel like giving up, may you know that there is a global cause and a Christ that has to be proclaimed to the nations of the world. Go in Jesus' name.